way of the Lord. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, May 16th, 2021. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So, Peter, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. If I said on May 16th, 2021, <laughs> uh, well, I should say on May 16th, 20, 50 years ago, how do I do the math so quickly? <laughs> <laughs> 1971. What was yeah. going on down at the Cherry Lane? <laughs> Well, they were getting ready to open Godspell, certainly, um, and um, nobody really knew very much about it. All the names attached to it were uh, names that were totally unfamiliar to us. And the fact that they had an original cast album contract with Bell Records, which wasn't famous for making cast albums, they had the rights to the musical Georgie the year before, which <laughs> didn't get made. So, I mean, really, we didn't have much um, expectation for this thing at all. At all. Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, some of the people who were down there are named Stephen Schwartz, Peggy Gordon, and Robert Lamont, and they are with us this morning to talk about the 50th anniversary mm. of the off-Broadway premiere of Godspell. So, Stephen, Peggy, and Robin, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Happy anniversary, everyone, almost. Good day. When did you know that this was really going to be a substantial hit? Did it take a few days? Did it take a month, a year? When did you say, oh, my God, this is really, really something? I think it took a couple of weeks. I do remember when we were um, doing our tech rehearsals at the Cherry Lane Theater. And as is often the case in tech rehearsals, um, and certainly was the case with us, um, particularly because of everyone's inexperience, things were quite chaotic. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I uh, was getting uh, a bit anxious. And one of our producers, Joe Baru, took me out for a drink after um, a particularly chaotic rehearsal. And he said, um, look, I-, I want you to know this is going to be okay. I'm, I-, I-, I already <laughs> can tell you this is going to be okay. He said, but if you and John Michael and the cast can really get this together, if you really get this right, you're not going to believe what's going to happen. Mm. And for some reason, 50 years plus later, I've never forgotten that conversation. Um, and then I think when we opened, you know, we were getting strong audience response. But um, as, as you know, famously, the New York Times review wasn't good, although everything else was. Um, and 
it took a couple of weeks, I think, for the word of mouth to spread. And then we started, you know, knowing that we were sold out every night and that all these celebrities were trekking down to the West Village to see mm-hmm. us. And then I think it started to become clear it was going to become pretty big. The move to the promenade, um, was that something that was in the works pretty early, pretty late? What? Uh, I don't actually remember. Um, I think it may that because that's Edgar and Joe, the the producers, that was their call, obviously. Um, I think maybe, you know, my guess would be maybe six weeks into the run when it was clear that we could be there for a while they started to figure they should do something that made a little bit more sense economically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I, They had some tie to the promenade theater and uh, not exactly mm-hmm. sure what it was, whether they had produced uh, something that was running or had just finished mm-hmm. a run uh-huh. there. Um, but there was some reason why the promenade theater sort of came into play pretty quickly once the decision to move the show was made. Um, so did you ever at that point even dream that Broadway be, would be an option? I don't think so. No, I, I mean, that came a lot later. Sure. And I think, frankly, um, if, if things had uh, been economically, continued to be economically feasible, we were all happier, frankly, staying off Broadway you know, as for instance, Little Shop did uh-huh. uh, a, bit, a bit later, uh-huh. um, just because of the intimacy and because of the experience of doing the show where you were so close to the audience and had such contact with the audience. But um, as you know, about the last year and a half of the run um, was at a couple of Broadway theaters. And again, that was purely an economic decision that they, on the performances that sold out, the weekend performances, they were able to do so much business that it, it just made sense to, to be in a larger theater. Now, there is that famous expression, work takes as long as you have to do it. Indeed, you had to do this very quickly when you were brought in to uh, provide a new score for the show. Uh, <laughs> do you feel if you had more time, <laughs> it would have been not even as effective a score or would have been even better? Any theories on that? Uh, I don't really have have a theory on it. You know, it's exactly what you said, Peter, that it just, you know, there was there was a finite period of time. I was brought to see the show at the Cafe La Mama on March 7th. And Edgar and Joe told me once I uh, I had signed on that we were going into rehearsal April 11th, I believe, was the date. So it was five weeks. And that's how much time I had. Um, you know, don't forget that the show was essentially done, that Mm -hmm. what I saw at the Cafe La Mama, save the new songs and some choreography and a little bit of tweaking, was essentially the show that opened. And also that because I was able to see the show, I I didn't have to spend time figuring out what the show was. Uh Plus so many of the lyrics existed because they were um, from the Episcopal hymnal. And then many of the other uh, lyrics that I devised came very much out of various um, parts of the Bible. So it was a matter of editing and restructuring, again, more than, re, that, than, than coming up with something anew. 
So I think that's one of the reasons I was able to do it as quickly as I was that and my own ignorance that what I was being asked <laughs> to do was not possible. We should mention that the, 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 uh, the, um, uh, Edgar Lansbury that you've referred to more than once, uh, for those of our listeners who don't know, was Angela's brother, which I always thought was really neat. <laughs> yeah, they were, uh, you know, and are quite a show business family um, hmm. because Edgar's uh, and Angela's other brother, Bruce Lansbury, who hmm. has now passed away, um, was um, the producer or whatever it is in television of Mission Impossible. So Mm -hmm. I believe anyway, he was a a major television producer. So all three of them were obviously major um, show business. um, You know, they, they they had major show business careers. Steven, you were, you were so young when, 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 (laughs) when Godspell made, uh, really made its debut in New York and obviously had uh, previous productions before the, the New York production. And it it came along what was it like for a 20-something-year-old to see their show go to Off-Broadway, then Australia, then London, Toronto, make a film, all in the course of just a couple of years? <laughs> well, I think for all of us, and Peggy and Robin can speak to this as well, we were so young and everything happened so quickly that I think it was difficult. It was certainly difficult for me to have any perspective on what was happening one was just running to keep up, you know, as Mm. soon as we opened in New York and then we were doing a great deal of publicity. We were on all these, you know, talk shows and morning shows, et cetera. And then the Los Angeles production came up and then the London production came up. The movie happened pretty quickly. I would say actually too quickly and, um, (laughs) and so on. So it was, it was just like, well, okay, what do we have to do next? Um, and there wasn't really time to have, for me, to have any perspective of, of of what was happening. And certainly I didn't have the experience to know how unusual it was. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it took me a while, quite a while, <laughs> to sort of have some kind of distance and perspective from the experience. I may be wrong about this, but... Um... Aren't you the first off-Broadway musical to get a movie? Oh, um, well, of course, Little Shop did as well sometime later. No, I'm, I'm talking about the first, though. I think you're the that first. Off- um, yeah. Unless you count. Uh, unless, yeah, Three Penny Opera. I was going to say. No, but that's a Broadway show. <laughs> well, no, but the Three Penny Opera was at Theater de Lise. Which is sure, but it was on Broadway in the 30s, so oh, I count right. that as a Broadway oh, okay. musical. The, I count that as a Broadway musical. I it's, bow, Peter, to your <laughs> always more extensive than my knowledge of theater. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's I, I, I can't help thinking about uh, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, because uh, at the end of the show, you may recall, uh, before someone nice like you, you hear Anthony Newley say, 25 years, Evie, with this uh, attenuated voice. Uh, <laughs> sounding so very, very old. And um, when I was a kid, you know, that sounded very logical to me that 25 years later, uh, that would be a voice. But here you are 50 years later, and you sound pretty good, don't you? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel okay. By the way, I just saw um, a message come in, maybe in the chat, saying that there was a movie of Jacques Brel. The movie was made of Jacques Brel. And Jacques Brel, I believe, did precede us. I don't think it did. I don't think it did. Oh, preceded you on Broadway, but I'm talking about the first Broadway. 
I'm I'm talking about the first movie made from an off-Broadway show. And yes, Jacques Brel happened, but it was after you. Oh, okay. There you go, Stephen Bell. (laughs) And you uh, all need to listen to Peter Felicia because he... (laughs) Michael? And on a related note, uh, uh, for the 10th, I'm sorry, for the 40th anniversary of Godspell, there was a wonderful uh, CD release of the original cast recording and the soundtrack by Masterworks Broadway uh, with a great essay uh, that that Stephen wrote uh, in which you talk about how the album was produced more as a pop album than a cast album. And you also go into the fact that, I I mean, I, I just find this so incredibly fascinating. I think that um, the recording of Day by Day from the original Broadway cast or uh, off-Broadway cast album uh, was one of very, very, very few cases where a recording from a cast album became a, uh, a top 40 radio hit. Yeah, I, um, I, I think it, there was a long time in between that. Of course, Hair had many um hit records but none of them were directly off the cast album i have a feeling peter you'll be again probably more knowledgeable than i that the last time it had happened prior to us might have been some enchanted evening hco pinza which is 1949 Mm. um but yeah i mean and part of it again is the and robin can speak about this you know the the very soulful performance she gave and robin has such a great recording voice that um you know i think that's one of the reasons it happened also frankly we were waiting endlessly for the fifth dimension to record it and we kept being promised that it was going to be the fifth dimension's next single and then you know several jimmy webb songs later i think um it was actually at the grammys and uh, when Godspell won the Grammy, I saw uh, Larry Utah, who was the head of Bell Records, which then became Arista, but at that time it was Bell Records. And we were talking about it. And, uh, you know, I said to him, why don't you just release the song off the album and we'll, you know, just get it out there. And, uh, you know, then they did. And, and of course, it, unexpectedly for all of us, it became a big pop hit. Now, I remember, Stephen, when you and I uh, took a flight to Atlanta, you told me that when you were with RCA Records, you were uh, begging them to do the cast album of Follies. That is correct. Uh, and um, the, <laughs> were you very excited when you heard that the uh, gentleman who did the logo for Follies was going to do your logo for Godspell? Very much so. I, da- I actually knew David because he's a Carnegie Mellon grad. Ah. And, um, he was a little bit ahead of me at school, but I knew him a, a bit from school. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, we were we were obviously delighted that he was doing it. I will say that essentially what he did, because I, I don't think he was he had that great a belief in the show, was that he took the logo he had done for a um uh, I, I think there was like a Carnegie Hall concert or something of Tommy. And uh-huh. <laughs> um, basically he took that logo and put a red circle on the cheek. Um, and that was essentially what he did. But, you know, we were happy to have it. <laughs> uh, Stephen, you, uh, you have this huge success on your hands uh, for Godspell. And little does anybody know or did, Anybody know that Waiting in the Wings was Pippin? Uh, I mean, uh, when did you, uh, when are you able to transition out of your mind frame of Godspell is this huge hit and start working on Pippin, or was it concurrent, or how would it go? 
it was absolutely concurrent. Um, in fact, we had been working on Pippin, uh, and Stuart Ostra was already uh, in as producer on Pippin oh, okay. when Godspell happened. So there was a little bit of juggling going on. Um, I know that I was in London for Godspell while some of the casting for Pippin, the preliminary casting for Pippin was going on. And, and with some irritation, um, Stuart called me and said, you have to get back here because we're <laughs> going to be doing final casting for some of the principals. Mm-hmm. Um, so get out of London and come back here. Um, and there, there was uh, some of that going on. Um, you know, kind of trying to juggle both the the obviously the New York show of of Godspell had long since happened, but uh, or somewhat long since happened. But um, the continuing work that the Godspell demanded with all the other productions rolling out really did involve some plate balancing uh, with the with Pippin. Well, uh, speaking of London. <clears throat> Did you say to yourself when you saw that Jeremy Irons in the cast, wow, this guy's going to amount to something? (laughs) The London cast was absolutely amazing because in addition to Jeremy Irons, as you know, we had David Essex Mm -hmm. as uh, as Jesus and um, Gay Gay Soper was in it. And um, oh, and the future, the future. Yeah, the future (laughs) was the original Evita. On mm-hmm. the recording, she was our day by day girl in in London. So it was it was a pretty amazing cast. Nobody had heard of any of them, of course, mm-hmm. um, at that point. Um, but yeah, the, they were all pretty amazing. Jeremy, of course, uh, among them. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me take a point of personal privilege. I want to ask you something totally unrelated to theater. Um, uh, Colors of the Wind is perhaps the most beautiful song ever written. And oh the, gosh, um, thank I'm, you. Think, I'm seeing I'm, Alan actually, Alan Menken, um at eleven. That's why I'm gonna have to jump off. So I will tell him yeah. that's so. And uh just the lyrics that you have written for that song. Uh, I mean, what was the inspiration for that? How did you get your mindset into this into the Pocahontas world? Um well, I followed one of my sort of, for want of a better word, mantras or, you know, one of my, the tenets of writing, which is in lieu of inspiration, do research. <laughs> so I did an enormous amount of research. I read, I got a couple of books that I found of Native American poetry and I read those and some of the phrasing uh, came from that. And also I came across um, a letter written to Congress by Chief Seattle of the Northwest Tribes, um, sort of excoriating Congress for breaking yet another treaty and taking mm-hmm. the land that they had given to that tribe and um, bespoiling it. You know, and, and a lot of what he said in his letter to Congress, I paraphrased uh, for, for the song. Um, the point being, I really did a lot of research to try and come to it from a Native American point of view. And uh, and I appreciate the, uh, the praise from you saying that, um, you know, that you felt I succeeded. Well, it's 1020 and we promised we'd let you go at 1020. So 
Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for the the good questions. It's very, you know, obviously it's very happy to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Godspell. Peggy and Robin, lots of love to you. Love they you have too, a sweetie. lot to say love for you. the rest of the time that will be very uh, interesting, I know. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something that only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone's online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know that there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part about it is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address that's shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, a phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN in the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio and get three extra months for free. That's express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash broadwayradio. Go to expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio to learn more. And thanks so much to ExpressVPN for continuing to support Broadway Radio. So, Robin and Peggy, thank you so much for standing by as we could get Stephen in and out so he can go hook up with Alan. You know, Alan. (laughs) (laughs) So, Peggy, say hello to our listeners at Broadway Radio. Hello, listeners. And you can fact check me. It's okay. Okay. (laughs) And Robin? Hi, everybody. So nice to be on the show. So how how far back did you get involved with this project known as Godspell? Peggy, tell us. Yeah, well, Robin was it. Robin, talk about it. Robin was in it at school. I was not. Ah, so yeah. Robin, tell tell me when when was your introduction to Godspell, and did you think uh, think uh, is this going anywhere? I was actually a junior at Carnegie Mellon University in the drama department, and I was cast from the pool of juniors and seniors in this master's thesis project by John Michael Tabalak. And uh, it was wildly different uh, than anything else Carnegie was doing at the time, um, which was generally repertory theater. Um, And it was a wild ride. We had a, a 
a very short time to put the show together. And we're in this tiny little studio theater. Uh, And I think we had three performances of the show. And by the third performance, um, this studio theater, which held maybe 125 people, was absolutely packed. Mm. Um, You know, at the time, I certainly didn't know it would go any farther. But uh, then John Michael decided to bring it to the Cafe La Mama. um, And three of us took a leave of absence from school to come and do it there. And at each stage, I don't think we expected it to go any farther, um, but it sure did. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So from way back at Carnegie Mellon. So Peggy, how about you? When was your introduction to Godspell? So my introduction is I took my, took my, I love the phrase, took my diplomatic uh, junior year. I was also a Carnegie at ACT. I got into the company as a 19-year-old journeyman actor, and I was thinking, hey, where's the suffering? This is great. And I was debating whether to come back for my senior year, and I got a call from John Michael, and he had gotten the opportunity to bring it to La Mama. He handpicked actors that he had worked with before. So he called me and he said, I need you in New York. And when he told me what it was about and he said, you can be intricately involved in creating something from the ground up uh, as well as the music. And I said, "Um, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the rest of that sentence because I was just buying my plane ticket. (laughs) So uh, Bill Ball was the artistic director at ACT at the time. He was absolutely wonderful. He said, you can have, you know, however much time you need to go and do that and As Robin said, it's so true. We never, never thought about, is this going to be a hit? Am I going to get an agent? Is this going to get picked up? It was such an absolute, pure labor of love. We wanted to manifest John Michael's vision. That was all we ever thought about. It's all we ever talked about. And that was it. And so Robin was right. I was thinking, well, okay, this will be for a few months. And then I can always go back to ACT or, you know, something else. But it was never... Um, will this get me my next gig? Will this get me my New York career? It was just always, every second of every rehearsal, are we manifesting the vision that John Michael has tasked us to manifest? Which hmm. is why I have to say about Steve, I, I love this. He's so humble. Yes, the show was largely structurally put together, but act two was about three hours long. Seriously. <laughs> And I, I mean, you know, Steve is so humble. He had to get it down to 45 minutes. So there were massive, massive cuts. And what people don't know about Steve is he was a directing major at Carnegie. So he knew how to do what John Michael didn't. He knew how to edit. Mm-hmm. John Michael was so unbelievably brilliant. He was just conceptually dense and brilliant. He couldn't cut a thing, but Steve could. And Steve completely reshaped Act Two. And if not for that reshaping and his his concepts of where musical numbers had to go in order to open scenes up, case in point, Alas for Ye was text. Steve knew all of that. He knew all of that. We didn't know anything about any of that. And John Michael certainly knew nothing about musicals, nothing. So Steve was absolutely invaluable. And now I have to say the line that always gets people to gasp out loud. Peter, I was sharing this with you. 
you know, my thing about John Michael, I loved him so much, but you had to have worked with him at least once to understand what in the world he was talking about. And Steve had never worked with John Michael. And again, I thought he was very humble in what he chose to say because he had four weeks to write new music to eight songs, create five additional songs and musicalize the prologue, which had been spoken four weeks, <laughs> which was extraordinary. And understand the concept. And reshape that too. So Steve is so largely responsible for the success of the show. He is. So, oh, in answer to your question, me from La Mama on. Okay. So, uh, either one of you, do you recall any of the, uh, anything that was cut for time that was really a gem that you'd want us to hear? <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, there was the, the verse that um, was Steve's actual, he's, it was his favorite verse in By My Side that I elected to cut. And I'll never forget this moment because, as I said, Act Two was three hours long. Uh, and he just came up to me and he said, we have to cut a verse. And I said, dear God, cut the verse where she's sticking her eye in the flower. Because I can't, I don't know how to, I can't, I'm not making that work. And that was Steve's favorite verse because it went from D major to D minor to D major to D minor. It was a very odd musical verse, but it was exposition. And I said, we already know she's depressed. She's told us she's depressed. So if we can move on to the action of her, you know, putting the pebble in her shoe and empowering herself, that would be really happy. I would be very happy about that. So we cut the verse that says, for I fear I shall weep and never laugh again. I do want to laugh again and again. I want to smile inside and put my eye in every flower. Please take my hand. And I have no regrets. <laughs> should clarify, we should clarify for those who um who do, those few who may not know that uh when Stephen first saw the show at La Mama it had some songs in it including uh by my side uh co-written yeah. by by Peggy and uh and he uh uh eliminated whatever else uh what other whatever other songs were in it except for that one, because he basically said it was so perfect and he loved it so much that he didn't feel he could do better. <laughs> so that that is yeah. talk about humility. He did. He's so humble. He did. That's exactly well. The other thing, though, um, Peggy, uh, when you heard he was coming in, did you say that's it for my song? It'll never <laughs> survive. <laughs> no, you know, I really didn't. Because Steve is here's the other glowing thing that I can say about him. Not only is he an amazing producer to work with in the studio, he's extremely collaborative. Case in point, he knew Robin, Gilmer, Jeffrey, and I had basically done all the background vocals to the original eight songs. He was very collaborative. He wanted to hear our ideas. So I I know I didn't have a moment to panic thinking he's gonna cut my song. He cut Jeffrey's. But he didn't cut mine. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, I did hear, um, and this may not be true, but I did hear that when you were starting this show, that indeed there were some pop songs in it. Uh, I assume that means songs that everybody knew at the time or famous pop songs or were they obscure pop songs? Do you recall that there were any pop songs? This is what I've heard. I'm not saying it's true. I'm just asking you. You mean in the original production? Yeah. Way, 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 way back when. No, here's the thing about Dwayne Bollock, whom I love. And I, I feel so bad about Dwayne. His music was extremely odd. It was very, very rangy. It had these incredibly insane jumps and intervals especially in Robin's solo, Turn Back, Oh Man, Rob, I try to sing that song without the piano arpeggiated thing underneath it, and it's insane. 
Um, so these songs were, with the exception of the original version of Bless the Lord, impossible for an audience to walk out humming. Uh-huh. And mind you, again, this is before Spring Awakening and Rent and all of yeah, these yeah, other yeah. shows Indeed. that popularized music that you might have heard on FM radio. Sure. Songs that had been written about teenagers like Bye Bye Birdie, even even um, even Hair. Hair was really theater pop, and that's not a dirty phrase. No, no, um, not at all. So Dwayne's music was impossible for an audience oh. to sing. So oh. they weren't pop at all. They okay. were things that you would have heard on FM radio. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, when you talk about the fact that uh, you didn't expect anything to come of this, um, but here's John Michael saying we're going to La Mama. So it would suggest that he did have bigger aims for this show if he wanted to take it to New York and at least have people see it. Did that ever come up? Did he talk to you about it? Um, well, how did you uh, feel when you heard that um, uh, we're taking this to New York? Um, did you think it was a waste of time? Did you feel this was just the first step? What? Well, uh, I was pretty excited about it. Um, we, we were at Carnegie to be actors and the chance to come to New York and and do a show off off Broadway. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, so my family was there and uh, uh, nice, it was nice. it was just a lot of fun. And it was a dream come true even to get to the Cafe La Mama from. Sure, from sure. Carnegie. But my point is, was John Michael somebody who did have a reaching ambition here by going to La Mama saying this will be the first step of many or, hey, as a goof, let's just go to New York and do it. Oh, I don't I don't think it was a goof, um, but I don't know what was in his mind. I, uh-huh. I, I know that he he believed greatly in the show. And I think he hoped um, and worked to get uh, the producers down to Cafe La Mama to see it. Okay. Believing and hoping that it would go farther. Uh huh. Okay, fine. I can uh, actually speak to that because John Michael and I were very close. He had zero desire to have a career in commercial theater. Zero. In fact, uh, you know, before he died, he was made the um, dramaturg at the Church of St. John the Divine and was working on a theater piece there. If he could have gotten a gig as an artistic director, you know, at a small regional theater where he could have done um, his vision of what he wanted to do, he would have been incredibly happy. I think the pressures of commercial theater were overwhelming for him Mm -hmm. emotionally and psychologically. It just wasn't his vision of what he saw for himself as a career. So I can honestly tell you throughout our six weeks in a professor process at Mama um, and the two weeks of uh, performances. And then, you know, same thing, our three and a half weeks to four weeks of rehearsal at Cherry Lane previous, et cetera. We never, never once talked about, gee, I hope this goes to Broadway. It was always, are we manifesting John Michael's vision? Period. That was it. In fact, mm-hmm. Sonia Manzano, her catchphrase was always, let's never gild the lily. Hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Robin, uh-huh. I'd, I'd love to ask you more about the hit status of Day by Day, because uh-huh. I, I just think it's so singular. Um, as we were sort of discussing earlier, uh, of course, back in the day, there was lots of uh, Broadway music on the radio, on pop radio. But um but rarely, I think, very, very, very rarely was it from the original cast recording. As Stephen mentioned, Ezio Pinza, Some Enchanted Evening. I think that was 
that was a very rare case of that. Ethel Merman had some hits, but they weren't from the original <laughs> cast recordings because there weren't any in those days, you know, in the 30s. Yeah. Um, and yeah. uh, and well, the I record I, Wendy um, and I Got a Crow uh, was made to a 45 from the cast album of ah. Peter Pan for the record. Anyway, go on. Oh, interesting. And, and do you think it do you feel like it got radio play? I really don't know, um, yeah. but I do know it happened. I've actually seen the 45. Um, but um, uh, the fact that it, see, it does seem to be so obscure, it certainly can't compare to day by day, I'll tell you. Well, I, I Googled um, the subject and I came up with an article called Broadway on the Billboard charts. And this deals with mostly songs that became uh, that charted in after the rock era started, uh, which was very unusual for Broadway songs. And, and, and if you look at the list, Louis Armstrong, Hello, Dolly, mm-hmm. but obviously not from the cast album. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barbara Streisand did have a record, hit recording of People, but right. again, not from, not the, from cast the cast album. album. Uh, mm-hmm. Judy Collins, Send in the Clowns, The Fifth Dimension, of course, the, those two songs from Hair, mm-hmm. uh, Dionne Warwick, I'll Never Fall in Love Again, uh, Elaine Page, Memory from Cats, you know, but that, but that was in, uh, Lond- on the London charts. Uh, Helen Reddy, I Don't Know How to Love Him. Uh, there's two they don't mention here uh, uh, that I always bring up, Murray Head, uh, One Night in Bangkok from Chess, but that was from a, a concept album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think, uh, I, and I am telling you, I'm not going, uh, Jennifer Holiday from the cast album got radio play, but then we had, you know, then we have Robin Lamont. <laughs> uh, and and Peggy uh, in the vocal mix there somewhere. I have to well, say, Michael. Can I just say, first of all, I'm applauding, but I'm also loving the fact that you have not been fact checked. Yay! <laughs> well, I'm reading from it. I'm reading from an article here. So, <laughs> <laughs> if it's on the internet, it must be true. It yeah. must be true. It must be true. What else could possibly be? Yeah, sure. But Robin, how incredible must must that have been for you? I mean, you you never set out to be a recording star, and here you know here you are the the soloist on this hit album i i have so many questions about it but one thing i'd like to know is what was it like after it became a a, a pop hit when you would launch into it uh on stage at the i guess it's still at the cherry lane uh did you sense the audience going oh <laughs> you know just a, a palpable feeling of that yeah, I, I, I did. Um, and the song comes early on in the show. Right. And, uh, you know, I think even, I'm not sure, but it might have taken a while after the song was out for a while. But a lot of audience members had heard it before. And yes, I think there was a sense, at least for me, uh, as almost as soon as the opening Uh, chords came was oh gosh here comes that song Mm -hmm. and there was this sense I think from the audience sort of a relaxation a sigh of giving themselves over to the show and possibly internally thinking I'm in good hands here Mm -hmm. I'm going to really enjoy this do you recall the first time you heard it on AM radio, where you were, <laughs> what your reaction was? I, d- I don't. I know that I used to um, turn on my clock radio when I was doing the film uh, mm. to wake up for a 5.30 a.m. call. Mm. And I would say maybe one out of three days I would hear the song. 
<laughs> wow. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Now, um, I didn't see Godspell in 1971 off Broadway. I had to wait a year. Uh, I was living in Boston and it opened at the Wilbur Theater in a sit down production. And here I am astonished, even thinking I'm in the wrong theater, because although I've been listening to the cast album incessantly for a year, it starts off with something completely different. Hmm. Um, there's a big section that starts the show long before prepare ye the way of the Lord. And uh, was there any talk about putting that onto the album? Do you recall anything about that? I'm not sure why it isn't. I, I'm, I'm not 100% certain about this. I have a feeling I'm going to get fact checked in two seconds. I think there might be copyright issues because of the text. I'm, I'm just not sure why it isn't on the album. No, no, I can fact check you because Stephen. Oh. Stephen writes about this in his essay in that uh, 40th anniversary album release that I mentioned. And he said it was done specifically because they wanted it to be more of a pop album. Uh, oh, Michael, thank you. See, I was too busy uh, to get my pictures in that album and I just didn't read that. Okay. <laughs> Peggy, in the past, you've alluded to me that one of the things that spurred John Michael was the fact that he had a difficult experience at an Easter uh, mass or something like that? Yeah. I mean, I can talk about this. It's, it's actually detailed in, you know, Carol Desjardins brilliant book, the Godspell experience. So mm. I would just give you the cliff notes, but he went to as a deeply spiritual 20 year old kid to an Easter Sunday church service. And aside from the fact that, you know, he had to listen to a lot of droning and dogma and ritual, et cetera, et cetera. He was deemed inappropriately attired by this community and he was frisked by a parishioner who's an off-duty cop with the assent of the congregation and the minister it was a mm. horrible horrible wow. experience he walked out of there the way he communicated it to us at that first rehearsal at mama he was shaking when he told us this story it was so awful he just said uh wasn't jesus poor didn't uh-huh. he hang out with the poor wasn't uh-huh. he constantly addressing the needs of the poor <laughs> and where was the love thy neighbor as thyself love and that's why he said here's what i want to do i want to take him out of the church put him into a child's fenced playground where we will discover as pre-adolescent children whether there is any spiritual sustenance in what he is purported to have said and done john michael said i believe there was and the happy upshot of this will be the formation of a truly loving empathic inclusive community, which will be the antithesis of what he experienced at this Easter Sunday church service. Now, having said that, let me let me give a shout out to this Anglican community. Thank you so much. Because <laughs> if you hadn't have been so awful, God's yeah. would never have <laughs> Now, of course, um, this predated uh, Godspell's opening predated the Broadway opening of Jesus Christ Superstar, though we all knew Jesus Christ Superstar from that uh, double decker recording with the brown cover. But here's my point. Back um, in 1971, in October, when Jesus Christ Superstar opened on Broadway, there were so many protests about how sacrilegious this was. And of course, time has changed that. Now, not so long ago, it became an Easter special on NBC, but it was controversial. Was there much controversy about having Jesus represented with a Superman shirt. Yeah, I, I think there was. Um, and, you know, as Stephen mentioned, that that uh, sort of not glowing review from the New York Times, you know, some people felt it, it, it was juvenile, uh, it was too hippie-like. And in those days, hippies were not really revered. It was... No. 
uh, not a good image mm-hmm. for Jesus. Um, and, you know, we would get some very bizarre letters and, and occasional hate mail. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, for the most part, I think people really accepted that and really embraced the concept. Well, there's a clip uh, I sent. I think I sent it to James. Uh, if not, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll have find it. it. Yeah. yeah, there's an incredible clip of you all, you, all uh, you guys yeah. on the Today Show. Yeah, with yeah. Barbara Walters, a very young Barbara Walters and you yeah. Downs. And Barbara uh, kind of uh, addresses the controversy uh, and uh, you know, as a preliminary statement in order to, uh, you know, it, it shows what a hot potato uh, it was in some people's eyes. And then there's a wonderful moment. I guess this clip is edited um, for for some reason, but she turns to, to Robin and says, um, uh, you know, before the show was established, uh, were people reacting very, very badly and, you know, walking out and uh, of the show and hating it. And, and Robin, you, you sort of, look kind of shocked and say, no, I don't think so. <laughs> we didn't get any hate mail. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I can address this and I, I really tried to get, cause we were on the today show for two full hours performing and I wow. tried to get the whole clip and I just couldn't get it. That was all I could get, which is why it's on my uh, YouTube channel. But we used to get what I recall um, and certainly not in New York and, and not in any of the major cities mm. we would get, or specifically Robin would get what I called hate love mail it would sort of be mail like what you're doing is so awful it's so terrible you're so cute i kind of like to date you was the subtext (laughs) so i'm really serious it would be directed unfortunately to robin and maybe it was because of day by day but we would read the letters and that was the subject it was always it was from the bible belt which is why when the first national bus and truck tour took off they went to all of those cities in the bible belt with a 20-year-old Melanie Mayron in Gilmer's role, and their stories are incredible because they were dealing with it firsthand, and we never did. I mm. mean, we were dealing with New York audiences who were euphoric. Right. Right. Let me ask a question. So that we've talked about the New York Times review a couple of times. That that was for the Off Broadway production. When uh, you when it finally made it to Broadway in '76, uh, was it? Um, Oh, was it re-reviewed and was it a better review? Do we know? I, I don't, I don't recall. I don't recall. I'll well, bet going it was. Back to, let's, let's go back to, to that first review because we actually enjoyed it. You know, Clive, Clive Barnes, I can't remember if he said we were nauseatingly platitudinous or nauseating and platitudinous. I can't remember. <laughs> I'm sure somebody will fact check me in two seconds. But that Sunday, we got a rave review from Walter Kerr on the arts and leisure section of the New York Times. So that one review was negated. We also had a brilliant PR um, team, Gifford Wallace. And Clive Barnes did give us a gift where he basically said, this wasn't my cup of tea. It might be someone else's. They took out a full page ad in the New York Times with every positive review we got from every possible place, print, TV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, one of the things that Clive Barnes said in the aftermath of that was that he was going to revisit the show and take another look at it. 
and see if maybe he had misunderstood it or something like that. So, you know, Robin's right. I don't know if the show was ever reviewed again when it opened on Broadway, but um, I doubt it would have been Clive Barnes. <laughs> <laughs> and and so all shows uh, are, are cyclical in nature that uh, they fall in and out of favor uh, with the general public. And uh, we see that uh, Godspell sort of came back to uh, the Broadway consciousness um, in in the late 80s and uh, and then again on t- in 2000 for the revival and it has ridden this wave since then where it's gotten a, a major tour in UK a, a Broadway revival again a Broadway tour it's playing all over the world in, in large productions uh, how have you gone back and seen different productions of it, and has it changed uh, your your outlook on the show at all from seeing it from an audience perspective? I've I did not see the revival on Broadway, um, but I've seen a number of regional productions, even some high school productions, um, and with varying success in terms of the uh, actors, the show works completely. Um, this, the score is so brilliant and the fun and ensemble nature of the uh, cast usually makes it work. And I've seen a lot of different visions of the show and, uh, sometimes with, you know, 20 cast members for the smaller high schools that want to get everybody in the drama department Mm -hmm. involved. I would say that my experience of the show is that it it works all the time and um, audiences just love it. It's funny watching some of these revivals and you see uh, uh, references to compact discs and, uh, uh, Walkmen and what have you uh, as the years have gone on. And so many of the things that we now see in Godspell productions weren't even invented when Godspell began 50 <laughs> years ago. Uh, <laughs> so it does get updated tremendously as time goes on and a lot of liberties are taken. And it it is a freeform show. I mean, we hear the term gender fluid today. Well, this is a theatrical fluid show that um, seems to take in so much. I, I saw it in Arkansas. Am I right? Little Rock. That's Arkansas, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I started, <laughs> I started in Arkansas a few years ago, and uh, it was really something to hear references to things that had not remotely been invented in 1971 or even since the last Broadway revival. So uh, people play around with it a great deal, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, because we were a true ensemble and we would have rehearsals all the time, updating some of the bits, as we called them. The general structure of the show always remained the same. But when um, when understudies would come in, sometimes the understudy might do something a little special. They might juggle or they could do cartwheels. And we would work with that. We would sort of embrace th- what an understudy could do uh, within the ensemble. So no one was ever required to replicate a role, uh, but to it was encouraged to recreate it. And I think most of the casts that do the show uh, come up with that same spirit. 
Well, I don't know. I don't know if Robin saw this, and I actually forget if Peter saw it. But I, I believe Peggy said that she saw the production of Godspell that was done last summer. As no, unfortunately, oh poor Mark Kennedy because he got everything else right. That article is so good, <laughs> but he conflated two things. I told him that Steve saw it, but that oh. I had been in touch with Kate McGuire, the amazing artistic director of Berkshire Theatre Festival. Um, so when I was I was giving uh, Mark that information, he unfortunately conflated those two things. But it was actually Steve who saw the production. Nevertheless, I can say that I had been in touch with um, with Kate, and you know, speaking to to I think it was Peter's point. I I'm in in an extraordinary position because, uh, as we all know, ten full years after first class production closes, all the rights revert to the creators, which are me, Jay, Steve, and John Michael's estate. So I am in constant contact with people who want to do the show. I am in constant contact with actors who are doing the show and have been consistently for my entire adult life. Oh, my God. But Kate reached out to me and uh, her email to me was so very, very beautiful. She said, I couldn't think of any other show I wanted to do in the pandemic but this show because it is so all about love. And it is all about hope and it is all about joy and it is all about community. Oh, my God, I'm going to get weepy. And um, and she said, I'm so honored to be doing this, Peggy. And she said, and I hope we make you proud. And I emailed her back. Well, you already have. (gasps) (sighs) Yeah. But it was Steve who saw it. Oh, my goodness. Mark Kennedy, you were so brilliant. I'm sorry, but it was Steve who saw it. Well, that's okay, Peter. I forget. Did you get up there? No. No. Oh, uh, well, at, at was it about two years ago, Peggy? There was a wonderful uh, show at the Cutting Room, uh, a reunion of lots of. Yes, which uh, Michael saw. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. We did that for Steve. It's for a wonderful. Can I just mention the organization? Because yes, so sure, absolutely. Okay, so it's for an organization that Steve supports. Um, called the Orphan Starfish Foundation. And I would just urge everyone to oh, yeah, it yeah, because yeah. it's valuable. And so we were, we were, um, you know, people got on the phone and they said, this is for Steve. And look who showed up. Everybody, everybody showed up. So I thought we were just going to do Light of the World. We were just going to do one number. And then it turns out we practically did the entire show. Don Scardino uh, was there. Don and- Scardino, Paul Schaefer, Ricky Shutter was the original drummer. Other musicians who played the show on Broadway me, Patty Mariano, um, Nancy McGraw, who did like five companies in four years on the road. She was a road clown. And Binky, um, Mark Planner, who was Lamar's first replacement. So it was so, as, as I said, you know, we actually tape recorded Michael Levine, who was, um, who was, who was playing the piano for the, the other acts, not for mm-hmm. ours. It was obviously Paul Schaefer. He tape recorded our rehearsal. And in the midst of talking, there was a lot of crying and a lot of laughing, which is a typical gospel rehearsal. We had such a great time. It was really wonderful. Except we couldn't find anyone to do Bless the Lord. And then Alice, Alice Ripley, God bless Alice Ripley. She had sung it in her church group. Didn't she say that when she was yeah. 15 years old? God bless Alice. Did she not sing the out of that song? <laughs> yes, it was so great to she be. She was amazing. And, oh, was and wonderful. Ben Vereen was there uh, for, you know, for Pippin. Yeah. yeah. And it was so cool because I had not seen Ben since, you know, he was doing Jesus Christ Superstar and we were doing God's Club. I, I would just say one interesting thing about Day by Day that that really really, when I look back on it, here was this 
this language from a 13th century prayer that I think even to our 20th century ears, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly. It's, it's awkward language to us. And yet Stephen took that song, uh, those words, and made such a simple, beautiful song that has become iconic. So, the uh, the movie, uh, I guess, uh, uh, many people have mixed feelings about it, including Stephen. But I, I, I have to say, I, I love, I really love most of it, including especially the way the musical numbers are staged. But also, it's so, of course, it's so incredible because it starts mm. out almost the very first shot mm. is uh, is a is a beautiful shot of the world trade center. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, later on uh, the climax of all for the best is actually danced on the roof of the world trade center. Mm-hmm. But then also I had forgotten this until I, I watched it um, the other night. Uh, there's that shot at the beginning. And then, uh, then we see David Haskell walking over the Brooklyn bridge with his cart. Uh, and then there's another shot of the world trade center uh, and then there's a transition into uh, you know a, a crowd scene uh, in in the city somewhere, and the transition is covered by the sound of a plane, a plane oh. just it, it, you know, and there's no reason for there to be a sound of a plane there, but it's it's kind of, of course it's you know it's just chilling and 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 it speaks to. Uh, you know, there's such an undercurrent of, of what we know that was now that was going to happen that, that of course, could never have been conceived of back then. Yeah. And, and an interesting thing, when we shot the scene at the World Trade Center, I think it was number two, it had not yet been completed. Mm. So we filmed um, the dance sequence on top of the building as it was being created. Wow. Yes, you can see the cranes. Uh, there's still some cranes on top of it in the in the film. It's incredible. That must have been so scary. It was, it <laughs> no? was horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like heights, so it was it was uh, it was a nervous couple of days for me. How yes, it, I remember reading that poor David Haskell uh, also hated heights, and he not only had to do that. But there's that uh, scene uh, earlier in the number where he and Victor Garber are um, dancing on a on a little scaffolding in front of the um, that the, the illuminated sign in Times Square. Mm. Yeah, it was and, for, for David, it was a real trial by fire because I think that was the first scene shot of the film. Oh, oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> well, Robin and Peggy, we want to thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. Please tell us uh, what you're up to these days uh, and how fans can catch up with you. So, Peggy, why don't you go first? Well, I did not have... Um, you know, and I have mixed feelings about this. I mean, I don't have mixed feelings about the fact that I did not have the same uh, painfully frustrating year and heartbreaking year that so many others did in the last year. Um, My projects were simply delayed. They were not destroyed. So I have two films and a play, both in development that are going to happen this year and in the early part of next year, thank God. And my songs continue to sell. So I may have, you know, had a hard year in terms of royalty money being impacted by live performances. But thank you, Netflix, Broadway HD and Disney Plus. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. And Robin, how about you? What's going on with you? Well, when I left theater, I worked for a while as a private investigator doing undercover roles. Wow. Then went on to get a law degree and worked as an assistant DA in Westchester County. And then took those experiences and did what any actor would do and start writing suspense novels. So I I have five suspense novels out and... um, working on some spec scripts, one based on um, one of the books. And anyone can look at the books and hopefully enjoy them um, on, you know, Amazon or any digital platform. That's wonderful. Wow, that's fascinating. So uh, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio, and we will speak with you soon. Oh, my God, guys, thank you so much. This is wonderful. Thank you very much. My shoes singing, meet your new road, then I'll take your hand, finally glad, finally glad, that I am here, by your side. Okay, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yes, indeed. Uh, The question was, one hit musical had a producer, director, choreographer, book writer, lyricist, composer, and the entire cast who had either previously worked on or would eventually work on musicals that closed out of town. Yes, the entire cast of this hit had had this woeful experience. Name the hit musical. The name's connected to it in the shows. Okay. The musical was the 1966 hit, I Do, I Do. The producer was David Merrick, who had had Hot September close in Boston a year earlier. The director-choreographer was Gawa Champion, who would have Pretty Bell close in Boston five years later. Book writer-lyricist Tom Jones and composer Harvey Schmidt wrote Colette, which closed in Denver in 1982. The entire cast had out-of-town closings, too, because the entire cast of I Do, I Do consisted of Mary Martin and Robert Preston. Mary Martin endured Dancing in the Streets in 1943, which had closed in Boston. My wick, tough on shows, we Bostonians, huh? (laughs) With a kiss of death. And Robert Preston experienced We Take the Town in 1962, which was Philadelphia. However, he then did The Prince of Grand Street, which closed in Boston. So, and that was the entire cast. Paul Whitty was the first to get it, followed by Steve Bell, Tony Janicki, Mike Meany, and Brigadude. This week's question. All these songs I'm about to name were big, bona fide pop hits from successful 20th century musicals. Getting to Know You, I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face, Standing on the Corner, 
I enjoy being a girl. A lot of living to do. I believe in you. I'll never fall in love again. And send in the clowns. And yet, each of these songs missed out on something. (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay, if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in our musical moment? Well, we've spoken so much about the original recording of Day by Day from the original cast album featuring Robin Lamont as the soloist. And as we said, um, our other guest, Peggy Gordon, somewhere in the vocal mix as well. And I do think that it's only appropriate that that be our musical moment for this week. I, I, uh, I'll i make the point again. I think it's one of a the very, very, very few cases where a recording from a cast album became a top 40 hit. I think maybe it was even a top 10 hit at some point. Uh, And so, uh, I I mean, it's a singular, singular achievement. Robin, I guess, um, is uh, the member of several clubs, several exclusive clubs, because first of all, as we all know, not many people uh, get to repeat their stage roles in a in a screen adaptation of a film um, so she's a member of that club but then the even even more incredibly exclusive club of having her recording of a song from a show become a, a am radio hit uh, just just really really exceptional and something that uh, i mean who knows when when or if it'll ever happen again i, I think i don't i think maybe hamilton came close um, of course, radio is so different now that it's, it's, it's hard to even make a comparison. But however you look at it, it's, it was a historical occurrence. And I will never forget um, sitting on my school bus <laughs> uh, from junior high school and hearing uh, Day by Day on the radio. I don't, I don't even remember if I already had the album, uh, but if I didn't, I must have purchased it right afterwards because I said, oh, this is really something special. <laughs> well, we all talk about the fact that uh, Broadway music was waning in popularity. And mm. isn't it interesting that the single of uh, Day by Day was not sung by Robin Lamont. It was sung by Godspell. That's what actually is on mm. the label. Mm. And for the first pressings, they did not say from the musical Godspell because they wanted to keep that a secret because uh-huh. musicals would taint it. it you know, I mean, This was an era mm. where you had groups like Three Dog Night and Jethro Tull and names that had nothing to do with music. So Godspell was just as good as any other name to put on a record label. Just don't let it know it was from a musical. It was not until the song really took off that the second pressings then said from the musical Godspell. I had forgotten that. Thank you. That is amazing. <laughs> All right. So that wraps it up for this week. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.